but we're thrilled to have our next guest join us all the way from uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Of course, uh, here in New York, we're going to have a new mayor come on board on January 1st, uh, Eric Adams. And um, a lot of people are wondering uh, how that's going to go. Adams ran as a conservative Democrat and um, has a lot of Republican friends, but we'll see, uh, you know, uh, where he ends up. But up in Boston uh, in uh, in November, they elected uh, Michelle Wu, unabashedly uh, progressive city council member who ran on the promise of a a, a municipal Green New Deal and uh, also called for uh, free mass transit for making the subway system, the buses and the subway system in Boston free for all its users and also for uh, rent control and decommodifying housing. So uh, Boston's uh, taking a leftward turn and and, um, it's exciting to follow from a distance to at this time where a lot of people say, oh, you can't do anything too big. Um, You know, Boston's uh, uh, going in some new directions and uh, joining us uh, today to talk about this is uh, uh, Evan George, uh, uh, he, uh, he's the editor of the Bostopia, uh, Bostopia News uh, podcast. It's also uh, very popular on TikTok. Uh, Evan, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you, John. Good to be here. I don't think I've ever been described as an editor before, so that was a nice title bump. Thank you. Okay. Uh, you, you earned it. Uh, so, um, yeah, can, can you just uh, tell us a little bit, first of all, uh, about Michelle Wu and the the kind of uh, promises she made that that got a lot of people excited and and helped deliver a, a landslide victory for her in, in November. Absolutely. So Michelle has an incredible story, especially to become now the first woman to ever be the elected mayor in the city of Boston and the first person of color in our history. And one of the most spectacular things about her is that she didn't grow up in Boston. And nativism is a very strong force in municipal politics, certainly is in Boston. I'm sure New York isn't too much of an exception. But Michelle was um, the descendant of Taiwanese immigrants. English is not her first language. She grew up, I believe, speaking Mandarin. Didn't come to the city until she attended Harvard, really at the turn of the millennia. Had to move back to Chicago to take care of her family. Her mother was dealing with mental illnesses, brought her family back to Boston and then really has been on a path towards this seat for about 12 to 13 years in terms of working in the community, gaining trust, earning a seat on the Boston City Council back in 2013. And she most certainly would not have been described as a progressive back in that time. I'm not sure if anyone described themselves as a progressive back in 2013, but her politics, like most of ours, have been pulled in either direction. And for Michelle, fortunately, that has been to the left And policies like rent control, which as early as, I believe, 2019, she was still against. Now she's in favor of bringing that back to Massachusetts. In terms of addressing our housing emergency, she's calling for, again, the decommodification of housing. And just to have somebody with that lens speaking as a socialist, I'm incredibly um, just hopeful in terms of what the future will hold with somebody with that lens. And as you mentioned in your intro, she's mostly known for her advocacy around Green New Deal legislation, what does that look like at the municipal level, and most particularly, fare-free public transportation, no longer viewing our public uh, public transportation network as something that should be run as a business, something that needs to turn a profit, but instead as a public good, a public necessity, and Michelle understands and believes in that and has already made progress in achieving that goal. Yeah, can you talk about the uh, initial steps? Uh, uh, three bus lines have been made uh, free, uh- Absolutely. So during the COVID pandemic, a lot of cities and towns across the country 
really allowed themselves to be creative about public transportation. Obviously, cities were shut down. No one was riding. So some cities, they use this time ideally to do capital improvements, things that they wouldn't have been able to do. But here in Boston, and I believe in some other cities, Lawrence and Massachusetts, I think L.A. out in the West Coast is looking at this, too started envisioning fare-free transit. And so we ran a pilot program off of Route 28, which is a bus uh, route here in Boston, which goes through the poorest communities of Mattapan, Dorchester, Rosendale. And it was incredibly successful. It ran for a few months. They came in under budget. It achieved basically the same ridership levels as pre-COVID, one of the only transportation networks to achieve that. And so they decided to extend it. And because Michelle... Her election was following someone who was the acting mayor. She was sworn in almost immediately. It was a very quick turnaround. It was two weeks from our election, November 4th. So let's call it Michelle took office on the 28th. And within a few days, she decided to uh, pass an ordinance to have two more additional bus lines, uh, routes 23, 29, still through underserving communities, be fare free for two years. And having a pilot program last that long is incredibly beneficial. All too often, municipalities do pilot programs that last a few months. And by the time anyone even knows they exist, boom, they're gone. And so Michelle had a lot of forethought in extending it. And this will be drawing from some of the federal funds that Boston has received um, in terms of helping uh, regain the city from the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And... uh and that got strong support at the city council as well, because she can't just oh, well, wave that's, a magic um, wand. I, I wish it did. In fact, what ended up happening was Michelle issued this ordinance. It was expected to go through right ahead, really just saying, you know, let's uh, forgo the rules. Let's vote on this. There's no uh-huh. reason to have to kick through committees after committees. And a city councilor who was actually an opponent of Michelle Wu during the mayoral race, uh, city councilor Andrea Campbell, put a stop to it, basically used legislative maneuver to, no, to not allow it to be voted on to kick it back into committee. And that honestly could have killed it. And that is normally how things die in municipalities. It gets sent to committee, it gets buried. Fortunately, the head of that committee, someone who no one would consider on the left, uh, City Councilor Michael Flaherty, referred to as five-car Flaherty, so not exactly somebody you think would be an advocate of public transportation, fortunately saw the political wins. Michelle wanted a massive mandate. Two out of every three voters supported her in a blowout election we haven't seen in a while. And so he put that back on a fast track that was able to have another vote, and it did end up passing the City Council in a 12-to-1 vote. And so, again, while, you know, 12 to 1 is great, the path to get there met some resistance. And I think one of the big challenges we'll see under a Wu administration is what happens when your mayor is to the left of your city council and your city council wants to take credit for some actions, wants to stall others. Can you move things through? She was successful in this case. And let's hope that continues through our first term. Right. And and beyond the, you know, the legislative maneuverings and whatnot, uh, I mean, the larger significance of of a program like this uh, uh, to me seems to be that it, it, it's uh, breaking uh, ground for the idea of, of free universal services. I and mean, we've talked, you know, we hear a lot of talk about Medicare for all and uh, other things that the, that the left has really uh, started to push aggressively in recent years. But can you talk about that? Like when, uh, how the, the free mass transit push in Boston is, is giving uh, renewed, uh, attention to that approach to governing. And, you know, the, the, the first part of that question is basically everyone knows this will be successful. 
everyone is going to enjoy having free bus lines through Boston, especially the most underserving communities. And so even the more conservative elements are worried. Once you start giving people things for free, once you start realizing what government can provide, they're going to expect it. And so, as you said, this can begin a snowballing effect, not just through other bus routes, not just through our MBTA network, but through other things as well, not just public transportation. And in terms of how we're implementing this, why a Medicare for all model or free at the point of service is the most successful, because there is an element of liberalism that wants to means test all these programs to death that uses the policy language of equity and equality. No, we need to be helping the people who need it the most. However, they end up creating bureaucracies which restrict those very people because people who are poor have a very hard time proving they are poor. It actually takes a lot of money and a lot of time to have the documentation to say, I need this. And anyone who's ever been on unemployment, I've been on it myself, knows the 37 steps we put in front of people, because in reality, we want to restrict who has access. And so it'll always be the most undeserving elements of your community that have the hardest time proving they need it. And that is why free at the point of service, you don't need to fill out a form, you don't need an ID, just get on the bus and enjoy your ride is the most successful. And just one additional element to this for people listening, how we will be doing the analysis, the data is they are actually going to be on the buses themselves having surveys with the people actually riding. And this is very important because there's a lot of ways to skew data. And you could just talk to some residents of the community who think, well, I don't ride the bus. My tax dollars are going to this. I'm not enjoying it. This is bad. Talk to the actual people who are enjoying it. Talk to the actual people who are riding the bus who a few extra dollars in their pocket at the end of the day makes all the difference and actually is probably going to have massive economic benefits because, again, now you don't have to spend your income on to and from your work. You can now use that to go buy a lunch, to go buy dinner, to maybe knock off a little bit over your rent over the uh, upcoming weeks. And so free at the point of service, it helps in so many different ways that really will just scratch the surface with. Right. Yeah. It's almost like uh, some of some of these uh, people are more afraid that it'll succeed than in, that it'll fail. Uh, we 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 have a, a clip uh, here in a sec uh, of uh, Michelle Wu uh, uh, talking uh, sh- uh, shortly after she uh, came into office uh, about sort of her uh, approach to governance. Uh, I think we'll listen to that here in a, in a moment. Is it possible for Boston to deliver basic city services and generational change? It is absolutely necessary in this moment. We'll tackle our biggest challenges by getting the small things right, by getting City Hall out of City Hall into our neighborhoods, block by block, street by street. So uh, that that was uh, Boston's new mayor, Michelle Wu. We're we're uh, here on WBI here in New York, but we're uh, looking closely at what's happening in Boston because it's, it's a really exciting moment there. We're about to have a new mayor and um we're kind of seeing a best case scenario for what can happen um, in, in a city with progressive governance. So uh, was she speaking there and it feels like she's uh, having to sort of answer the critics of like, Oh, if you have bold ideas, you, that must mean you're not going to be responsible about doing like the, the small day to day things. Um, can you talk about that sort of uh, uh, dichotomy that a, a lot of liberals have uh, worked up in their minds that if, if you're ambitious, you must not care about the, the, 
small practical things. And this is most certainly a narrative that the media attempted through much of the campaign. Um, again, this was a very historic campaign. We had four viable candidates. They were all women of color. Once it ended up being narrowed down to the top two, you had the most progressive candidate being Michelle Wu and the most conservative candidate being Anissa Sabi George, who very much, you know, from Dorchester, from uh, Boston, that was a big talking point in terms of the nativism, again, trying to tap into it. And the media would try to frame them as Anissa, the conservative candidate, was, you know, the potholes candidate, the one who's going to fix the streets, whereas Michelle has these big lefty ideas, but won't actually be able to get anything done. And fortunately, because the people of Boston have so much trust in Michelle, Again, she ran for office first in 2013, and as a relative political newcomer, she ended up getting the second highest vote total in an at-large election to all Boston, something incredible. And it really came from just shoe leather campaigning, her going through every community of Boston, every neighborhood, drawing on the networks of some of her mentors, Elizabeth Warren and our former historic mayor, uh, Tom Menino. And ultimately, what Michelle is going to kind of like straddle the lines between very much and again, modeled after her mentor, Elizabeth Warren. Warren was her professor at Harvard when Michelle was a law student there, is having your eye on a larger goal, but making significant marginal improvements in that direction. Now, that isn't a big baseball home run, isn't exactly the same type of organizing methodology that we'll say a Bernie Sanders candidate might have. But again, Michelle is advocating for some very strong left programs like fair free public transportation, like increasing public housing, like how do you deal with homelessness and mental illness around addiction? And she's already proving within maybe two or three weeks of her mayorship that you can get these things done. And while they sound big and bold, we are, again, really just beginning to meet all the needs that a city like Boston has. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about uh, new approaches on, on, on housing and homelessness from the uh, push uh, around rent control to uh, uh, new approaches to uh, helping people who um, are, are living on the streets? Absolutely. And those are three big topics. You might need to repeat them um, once I finish. But I love to start with rent control. Because, you know, uh, looking at from Boston to New York, I'm certainly jealous that you still have some institutions like rent control. It's not exactly the type of rent control that if I got to draft the policy would reflect here in Boston, but you have it nonetheless. And so here in Massachusetts, through a very sneaky ballot initiative in 1994, we ended up removing the right of any city or town to have rent control. Now, there are 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. At that time, only three. Only three had rent control, Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline. And because they were so overwhelmingly popular in those cities, landlords who wanted and large uh, developers who wanted to get rid of it did a nice little legislative maneuver, put it on a ballot initiative. And so you had every city and town across the state getting to vote on, again, something that only impacted three cities and towns. Uh, Boston, Cambridge, and Brookline overwhelmingly voted to support it. However, when you take it in the aggregate, I believe it lost uh, 51 to 49. And so since then, we have not been able to use rent control. And while there are a lot of policies that talk about how it might have some impact in terms of housing development and in terms of uh, private equity, 
Every study that has ever been done on rent control shows that it helps keep people in their homes. And when you are facing an eviction crisis, when you view housing not as a commodity, but as a public good, keeping people in their homes should be the primary objective. And again, this is something back, I believe, as soon as 2019, Michelle spoke out against. But I think from, again, the growing tide winds of our political polarization, it is a policy that she has come around on. Again, because I think I credit that to her view of housing uh, switching from property value is not going to be the be-all end-ball when you're talking about something like housing. It's going to be, can people afford to live where they are? Can people stay in their homes? And rent control is a absolute beautiful tool for that. Now, we have some restrictions in terms of how can we get this done? Because Massachusetts uses a home rule system, which basically means that we need to petition our very lethargic state house to let us do this. However, Michelle can use some political clout to put pressure on the number of House representatives who are up for re-election in 2022. And that's something I certainly hope she takes advantage of. Yeah, no, we've uh, faced similar challenges here in New York with our own uh, state legislature. And it it took an enormous push to uh, win some uh, major rent law reforms a couple of years ago. Um, and also here in New York with our, our new ma- uh, mayor, Eric Adams, coming in, I mean, we have a tremendous uh, uh, homelessness crisis here. And, and um, uh, you know, there's been a, a, a lot of discussion about whether um, the city might start to move uh, some of those folks uh, into empty hotels, um, spaces that are not being used uh, since the pandemic uh, struck. And uh, I understand um, you all started to do that in Boston since uh, uh, Michelle Wu came into office a few weeks ago. Yes. So we have a neighborhood of Boston, which is an interstate section. I think it's the largest one in Massachusetts. This area is referred to as Mass and Cass. Uh, Molina Cass Boulevard, and the abbreviation just Mass and Cass. And because that is also where the city's methadone clinics are, and there's a lot of public services there, people who are facing homelessness, who have mental health issues, have been congregating in that area. And this is not nothing new. This has been going on for at least a decade. And what happens then from our previous mayor, Marty Walsh, the police would go in at the dead of night using violence, ripping down the encampments that are building, pushing people either away or throwing them in uh, prisons. We had an acting mayor, Kim Janey, once Marty Walsh left to be the labor secretary, who followed that same policy. Just rip it down. People who won't leave have a warrant, throw them in jail. There are evidence of them being denied treatment while um, acting mayor Kim Janey was saying everyone is being provided treatment. And during that process, a nonprofit I believe Victory Programs said, well, listen, there is an empty hotel, 200 beds, a quarter of a mile away, not even. Why don't you let us use that empty infrastructure and we will run a housing first program. We will give people housing. They don't need to sleep on the street. And then we will provide treatment for the people who would like to receive it. And that's a really important distinction because what we try to do here, and I'm sure New York, you've had this um, already, if not already going through it, is the concept of forced treatment. That, no, these people don't know what's best for them. We're going to throw them in a cage. And every doctor, researcher, public health official can tell you that that makes things worse. That'll increase hospitalizations. That'll increase overdoses. That'll increase crime. That'll end up costing your city more money. You need to do a housing first uh, policy. Again, under acting Mayor Kim Janey, this was denied and removed. However, Michelle Wu, I believe as soon as yesterday or the day before, was saying every option is on the table. And this is absolutely going to be one of them. And so fortunately, nothing has, you know, we haven't taken that next step, 
but voicing support of it is again, a hundred percent a step in the right direction. And now it's really on us to put pressure to make sure that Michelle Wu carries forward with, again, what every doctor, scientist, researcher, where it comes to public health is telling you. People who are homeless, give them homes. It, it is that simple. Right. And, and speaking of uh, police, the police force, uh, what is the performance of the police force in Boston been like recently, uh, in, a, in a nutshell? And uh, how is... Uh, Michelle Wu approaching that because obviously uh, taking on the police force is uh, often the most uh, charged uh, battle that any mayor can uh, uh, try to fight. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure Boston has a nationwide reputation in terms of the racism of the Boston police department in terms of the corruption, though I have to imagine racism and corruption are pretty standard for police departments across the country. And what we started to see is, you know, they will get any city contract they want just just ask and they'll receive it. And now things started to change uh, this summer of 2020 during the George Floyd protests, when finally there was strong advocacy against this. The Boston Police Department is the second largest in terms of what our city funds go to after our education system, about $400, $420 million. And in during the course of those protests, people were saying, hey, we could actually be putting these funds towards things which reduce crime was actually giving people housing, economic opportunity, infrastructure, schooling, healthcare, things that we know actually reduce crime in our neighborhoods. Why aren't we doing that? And this became a rallying cry. And there were, I believe, four city councilors, Michelle being one of them, that for the first time voted no on the mayor's budget, which is something which is a rubber stamped policy, which always goes through. And just this past year, Michelle also now one of two voted no on the mayor's budget, saying, basically, we are giving too much money to the police department and not enough towards public services. And now during her campaign, Michelle never came out and used the phrase defund the police. She never gave a dollar figure that she was willing to cut or remove. However, she continued to use the language of reallocation. And one of the big things is around overtime pay because of a very, very generous contract that was signed, I believe maybe uh, in 2012, the police are allowed to go over their overtime budget as much as they want. It is a limitless cap. It is a bottomless hole. Choose your own uh, metaphor. And so every year they spend tens of tens of tens of millions of dollars over what is allocated. The average cop in Boston makes $120,000 a year. You can take the top 30 salaries of Boston police officers, combine them, and it's roughly $9.5 million. It is completely out of control. And their contract expired June of 2020. I think both them and police-friendly Marty Walsh said we shouldn't renegotiate this now in the middle of a civil unrest over funding the police. Let's wait until I'm reelected to have a chacools. But Marty Walsh left us for Washington, D.C. We now have Michelle Wu as mayor. And so we're going to see how much Michelle is willing to fight against what is a incredibly corrupt and overfunded police department. Well, that sounds uh, familiar uh, from here in New York as well. Um, it's been fascinating to sort of hold up the mirror between uh, our two cities here in New York and uh, Boston. I know we have a lot of Yankees fans here who gag at the thought of the of the Sox, but uh, a lot to learn from our our, our, our friends in, in Boston as well. Um, and, and I guess last thing before we have to go real quick, uh, you have a very active uh, chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America up there. You're uh, very active in it. Um, can you give us a quick very quick rundown on on what you all have been up to, and we'll have to call it a, call it a night. 
Yeah, fantastic. And again, thank you so much for having me on. So the Boston chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, I believe we are the sixth largest in the nation, close to 3,000 members in the greater Boston community. And we're fighting for the very policies that we've been discussing here, whether that is a Green New Deal for the city of Boston, whether that is a focus of on housing as a human right versus a commodity. And of course, we are involved in electoral politics, trying to get elected great socialists to represent their values, their, their community, and to do really a different modeling um, in terms of mobilizing people. And this past electoral cycle, we ended up getting into office or reelecting seven municipal um, city councilors in areas of Cambridge, of Somerville, of Medford, and um, Maybe, you know, the cherry on top uh, here in Boston with Kendra Hicks representing what is historically one of the most conservative seats on the Boston City Council. And she is most certainly not just the first socialist in the least a century to be on the Boston City Council, but she is the first black woman socialist ever to be elected in Boston's history. And she's already changing the narrative. And we already see city councilors that were very happy in the liberal to progressive leaning starting to already get the air of Kendra Hicks, starting to already adopt some of these policies. I believe she was going to be named the chair of the housing committee. And so having someone like Kendra, a socialist, being in charge of the Boston City Council's committee on housing is incredibly, um, I mean, just something I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled about to see what she can do with that position, how to give our lens and our narrative to what has been a housing crisis in the city. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Evan George of uh, Bostopia News and Boston DSA, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening on WBAI Radio here in New York.